Good morning and Boker Tov and welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. Back to one Parsha at a time. So this week we're only reading Parsha's Emor. Our series is generously sponsored by Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of David Gross, David Grossman, Le'ilu Nishmas, David Ben Menachem Manash. We remain very grateful to the Katz family. This morning's shir is also sponsored by Pam and Prospera Bitbull in commemoration of the year site of her father, Lester Greenberg, Eliezer Ben Mayer. Thank you so much to Pam and Prosper for all they do. And by Marilyn Jeremy Strauss, in memory of Michael Strauss, whose fifth year at site was this past Sunday. Thank you to the Strausses for all the support and friendship. And by Etzion and Marlene Genauer. Welcome back to Boca. Lili Nishmas, Rivka Basarav Avraham Akoin. Thank you for your generosity and your sponsorship as well. The learning should be Lili Nishmas, all of these wonderful people. We're reading Parshas Emor, page 672 in the Art Scroll, Stone Chumash. A reminder, if you want to stay up to date on our Parsha Shear schedule, additional bonus material, the write-up of Parsha Perspectives. All you have to do is join our WhatsApp group at rabbiefremgoldberg.org slash WhatsApp. Join all the sheer WhatsApp groups and get bonus material and up-to-date schedule. Our Parsha begins famously with the instruction. Hashem says to Moshe, tell the Kohanim, tell the sons of Aaron, that each of them have to be careful, they have to be vigilant, not to contaminate themselves to a corpse, to a dead body. Lo They cannot become contaminated. They cannot compromise their purity and their status. Kim karove love, with the exception of their immediate relatives. The seven immediate relatives, the Dekoanim not only have license, not only are they allowed to, but they must. If Soloveitchik has a discussion, is it Hutra or Dechuya? The fact that Kohanim generally are enjoined, they are prohibited from becoming contaminated through contact or exposure to a corpse. And yet when it comes to the seven immediate relatives, a mother, father, spouse, brother, sister, or child, they can or they should. You might have thought they can. But here the Torah says not only they can, or Salvechik's understanding is not only they can, but they absolutely should. They should. Why is this instruction? Chazal famously tells Rashi, quotes, Emor v'yamarta. Emor v'yamarta lahazir ha-gedolim al-katanim. Emor al-kohanim v'yamarta. Teach the kohanim, and they should transmit, they should in turn teach it to those beneath them. Who are those beneath them? Not beneath them in some judgmental way. Beneath them in age and life experience. To their children. Emor, you teach the kohanim. V'yamarta, and the kohanim then will transmit it to their children. And we've spoken much about this in the past. You can find it in previous Parsha Shiurim. So a beautiful Imre Chaim, the Vishnitzer, Lahazir Gedolam Alakatanam, Lahazir is Milashon to brighten, to enlighten, to illuminate, to lead by example, to teach the children who are younger. But I want to share with you today three interpretations of the Halig and Melimelach. My dear friend Rabbi Ari Murzov sent me earlier this morning the Noam Elimelach. Emor via Marta, Perish Rashi Lahazir Gedolam Alakatanam, Yesh Lamar. It means in every generation at all time, we have gedolim, we have wonderful, righteous, incredible examples whom we look up to, whom we learn from. And they are lahazir gedolim ala ketanim. They enlighten, they illuminate, they inspire, they motivate, they create a precedent for all of us. It means also, that a person or a great moments are godless, should overwhelm, should supersede, should inspire us over our katanim, our, our worst moments, the mistakes that we made, the things that we dismiss or minimize or think are unimportant. But means, how do we find inspiration? By looking up to those that we admire. One of the greatest ways to inspire ourselves is to read biographies. Reading biographies is incredibly inspiring, more so than self-help. Tal Ben Shachar teaches the most popular class at Harvard on happiness, spoke here at our shul years ago, and he said, if you want to improve and grow and be inspired, don't read self-help genre, of which he is a part. He said, read biographies. Biographies of people who achieved greatness, who broke through, who overcame obstacles and overcame failures and learned to fail forward. The biographies, Lahazir Gedolam Ala Katanim, Baruch Hashem, we're able to read. We have a great genre of literature, of Gedolam, of great men and women who have overcome their challenges. And Lahazir Gedolam Ala Katanim, that's how we can find inspiration ourselves. Number one, number two. O Yomar Emor Va'amarta, Da'aklal, Da'derach Atzadik Yishrotu Lechich Adam Acher, 
What is the best way to communicate, to get a message across, to inspire someone else? is not to give a specific or personal rebuke. We don't take well to that. We're a generation that don't handle criticism well. When someone rebukes us directly, in a focused way, personally, we get defensive, we get insecure, we arch our back, we reject their message. So, emor via Marta. Instead, emor, direct your message to the klal, to a group, and via Marta, it'll come through to the person. Don't direct it specifically as a focused rebuke, but give it as a more broad and general directive, feedback, and then the person hopefully will hear it, that really it's a message that is pertinent, it's a message that's related to them. But you take the edge off, you don't make it personal, you take away what seems to be the attack or the biting criticism. If more, give a general thing. So one child did something wrong at the dinner table, remind everyone it's really important in our family and what we value and how we all need to behave and what matters. And the child who needs to hear that message will hear that message more than if you give them harsh rebuke directly and in a focused way on them. So says the Noam Elimelech of Elimelech of Lezhinsk, it is a strategy for rebuke. more. Give it more broadly, via Marta, and the message will get across. And then lastly, a third possible understanding of this beautiful Rashi, this is a beautiful, beautiful insight. We have a notion, we have an idea of mochen de gadlus and mochen de katnas. Now, I am grossly inadequate to explain this fully, but I'll tell you in my limited capacity how I understand it. Mochen de Gadlas means sometimes we have a sophisticated approach. Sometimes we have an expansive perspective. Sometimes we're at our best. We're thinking big and clearly and our neshama is on fire and we're feeling close to Hashem. Sometimes we're at our best. Mochen de Gadlas, we're on fire, the greatness. And sometimes there's a Mochen de Katnas. Sometimes we're small and we're minimized and we are unsophisticated and we are immature and we're feeling distant and far. There's a mochen de katnas. We've spoken about this in the Amunash year, different periods, different days, different hours in a day. One can be Ratzavashov. You're close to Hashem, you feel far from Hashem. Panam Vachor, you see Hashem's face, you see his back, you're on fire and you're ice cold. We go through these fluctuations, the roller coaster of life. We discussed at length on the Amunashir for several weeks and months why that is, why that's part of the Bria, why that's part of the way that we're created. Says the Nomali Melach, Lahazir Gedolim Al Hakatanim. Sometimes when we are in a place of Mochen de Gatlas, we're on fire. We heard a great Shmuz, a great Shir, we had a great Davin, we had a great Yantav, we had a great Shabbos. We're in a great place. We feel close to Hashem. We have a clarity. Everything is illuminated. We're on fire. It's a Mochen de Gatlas. We have a mature, sophisticated approach. Lahazir, bottle that, capture that. Allow that to shine on the moments of mochen de katnas. Essentially, what defines us? Which is our core identity? Who are we in the end? What do we remember and what do we hold on to? Our best moments or our worst moments? Our highs or our lows? Our breakthrough or our feeling stifled or stuck? Which one really defines us? So lahazir gedolem, let the moments of mochen de gadlus, let them reflect and let them shine and let them lift the moments of the mochen de katnas. Our moments of greatness should outweigh and supersede, should uplift and elevate the moments of smallness. We all have them both. We all fluctuate. We all ride this roller coaster. That's natural and that's normal. The question is, which do we perseverate over? Which do we focus on? Which informs and inspires and defines us? Which is our identity? And here, that's what Rashi is telling us. Let the mochen de gadlus shine on and lift the mochen de katnus. Take those moments and bottle them and be inspired by them and capture them and use them to their fullest. The beautiful Noam Eli Melech. Chavetz Chaim has a magnificent comment. What is this Pasuk telling us? How careful we need to be. Lo yitama be'amav. Be careful. L'nefesh lo yitama be'amav. The Kohen cannot become contaminated to anyone else. Rashi says, As long as the deceased, the corpse, remains part of the people. You can be the Kohen Gadol. 
You could be a Nazir. You could be a person who's pledged to live a righteous life of purity. And yet, and yet, if there's a corpse, if there's a body that nobody else is caring for and needs to be buried, a mes mitzvah, even if you're on your way to offer your korban Pesach and you'll become invalid, it will delegitimize your ability to bring the korban Pesach still out of the dignity for that body, out of preserving the dignity and the love and the respect and the sensitivity and the kindness and the support for that body, the Kohen Gadol or Nazar need to stop in order to take care of them. Rabbi Leo Lopian quoted in the name of the Chavetz Chaim, it's in Lev Eliyahu, in the name of the Chavetz Chaim, Im kol kach nizra Torah b'chavodo shalmeis hamuto b'bizayon shechayavin kulon lehitamei lo latapal b'kvuraso If the Torah is so careful, if the Torah is so cautious, if the Torah is willing to be so foregoing to preserve the dignity and to prevent the embarrassment or the shame to a corpse, to a lifeless body. Since that corpse once held a holy neshama, since the corpse once carried at Salam Elohim, the Torah says you have to be vigilant and scrupulous and careful to preserve the dignity. So if this is how careful the Torah is when it's a mere corpse because it once held a neshama, how much more so we should be careful to protect and preserve the dignity and the love and the support and the sensitivity when the person's alive. You know, sometimes you see the salacha, the Kohen Gadol, the Nazir, even if they're on the way to the Korban Pesach, they set that aside in order to take care of this mes mitzvah. But it's a mes in the end of the day. Why? Because the mes mitzvah once housed the neshama. But what about the person who has the neshama? Should you cut them off on the road on your, runaway, on your, on your way to bring the Korban Pesach? Should you cut them off? Should you lash out with your road rage at the person who cut you off? What happened to the way we treat another while we're alive? Here the Torah is cautioning us how to treat the corpse once the neshama has been extracted, once we're gone, because we have to be so careful. We have to be so... What about when people are alive? We spoke last week. Don't embarrass the challah. What about embarrassing the people who made the challah, who bought the challah, who cut the challah, who served the challah? So careful, we cover the challah every week before Kiddush. Don't embarrass the challah. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter said, don't embarrass the people, forget the challah. So many people embarrass the people in the defense of the challah. The priorities are, back, are upside down. So we're so careful about a corpse, be even more careful about the people while the neshama is still inside them. The wonderful Otsuplos HaTorah has, oh, I could say for Vayikra. Emor is like half of Vayikra. It's an unbelievable amount. Not easy to go through and filter out what's, what we should share. But I want to share of Chaim Berlin. And his shiva is Nishmas Chaim. Rav Chaim Berlin. And Siv had sons. He had Rav Chaim Berlin, who became Rav Chaim Bar Ilan. Chaim, I'm sorry, Rav Chaim Berlin, who became Chaim Berlin, the yeshiva, the namesake of the yeshiva. And Rav Meir Berlin, Rav Meir Bar Ilan, the namesake of Bar Ilan University in Israel. So son of Chaim Berlin, the namesake of Chaim Berlin Yeshiva in Brooklyn. And Shiva's Nishmas Chaim. He brings something very sharp from the Adaras. Who was the Adarat? The Adaras was the father-in-law of Rav Kook. And he said the following. The Gemara Baracha says that Rabbi Avahu saw Yachadim Rabbi Zera, but Lokibir Rabbi Avahu as Rabbi Zera bebirchas hamazon. After Rabbi Zera, Kohen Haya. He says that even though Rabbi Zera was a Kohen, Rabbi Zera didn't get the mitzvah of leading the benching. Instead, it went to, instead it went to, Rabbi Avahu. Why? So the Adara says, you know why? Because the Gemara Megillah tells us the time that Rabbi and Rabbi Zera had the Purim Suda together. And they drank too much. Come Rabbah Vashachti, the Rabzeira. Rabbah got up and he killed Rabzeira. And then he davened for him and he brought him back to life. So the question is when he came back to life, did he have the status of a Kohen? And the Rav Chaim Berlin in his Chuvas quotes the Adaras with this question If a Kohen dies, if a Kohen stopped breathing, a Kohen's heart stopped, someone called Hatzalah, and they brought the defibrillator, they did CPR, they brought him back to life. He now has a tchiyas ames and he comes back to life. He was pronounced dead and he came back to life. Is he still a Kohen? He's born again, born anew. Is he still a Kohen? Or once you're resurrected, once you're born again, do you lose the Kohen status? And that's, what's the raya? The Adaris brought a raya that the reason Rabzeira wasn't honored with leading the benching as a Kohen, because he wasn't a Kohen. Because when he had Purim Suda with Rabzeira, with, uh, with Rabbah, Rabbah killed him. Then Davin for him, he came back to life. When he came back to life, he wasn't a Kohen. That's why he didn't get, that's why he didn't get the uh, keyboard of leading the benching. 
So Chaim Berlin says, it was a joke, this was a Purim Torah, it was a Purim shtick to be able to have this lamdas, because the truth is, it's not true. Because the Gemara wonders in Sanhedrin, where do we know Tchiyas HaMesim in the Torah? So you see that even though Aaron doesn't live forever, when there will be Tchiyas HaMesim, we will once again, give, once again give Truma to Aaron. So even though he's gone and he comes back to life, he will revert to the status of a Kohen. So you see it's not true. However, the beautiful Otsoplos HaTorah's quotes from another Sefer, the Kerem Yaakov. Anyone ever hear of the Kerem Yaakov? Rav Yaakov Chaim Sofer, who lives today in Yerushalayim. So the Kerem Yaakov brings a raya to the Aderas. Because the Ramban, in his Asagas and Sefer HaMitzvos, references the Gemara in Yuma, Why do we care how they were dressed in the Meimilu and what they wore is what they wore? What difference will it make? The question was, So you see, They'll need to be re-anointed. Why will Aaron the sons need to be re-established, re-anointed, re-set as Kohanim? Because maybe you lose the status of a Kohen once you leave this world. Interesting question. Interesting question. He goes further and he has another Chakira. He has another Chakira, which is, do you have to treat and honor a Kohen? We'll see from the Pasa Vikidashto, we'll get to, Pasak Vikidashto, that you have to honor the Kohen. Kohen gets the first aliyah, the Kohen is offered to lead the benching. One should ask a Kohen, did not ask the Kohen to get you the drink or bring you a paper. Kohen has a special status. We honor the Kohen because of their position. Does that continue posthumously? Does that include to the Kohen who's no longer alive? Now, you can't give the first aliyah to the Kohen who's no longer alive. You can't offer leading benching to the Kohen who's no longer alive. How would you do that? How would you do that? So he quotes here an interesting question. He says, Rev. Yosef Chaim Zonnenfeld, in his chuvas, wondered, She'ela nishala, she'ela nifla'a. Kohen she'yesh mitzvah l'akdima m'shem v'kidashto, k'shalomtem shach v'taz, ha'im tzarech l'hakdim limur ha'shach sh'haya Kohen. You learn in the Shulchan Aruch, and the sides of the Shulchan Aruch, you have the shach and the taz. The shach is an acronym for Rav Shabsai HaKohen Rappaport. The shach is Rav Shabsai Kohen. The Shach is the Sifsei Kohen, the Sifsei Kohen, authored by Rav Shabsai Kohen Rappaport. And the Taz, the Turizov. So the Shach was a Kohen. In fact, that name Rappaport are Kohanim Miyuchasim. Some who do Pudyana Ben look specifically for a Kohen named Rappaport, because the Rappaports can trace their lineage all the way back, and they are arguably the most secure and confident that they are indeed legitimate Kohanim. People by the name of Rappaport. We have in our community people named Cohen who are not Kohanim. So just because your last name is Cohen does not mean you're a Cohen. But Rappaport, there's a good chance that you are a Cohen. Rav Shabsai a Cohen Rappaport. So the Shach was a Cohen, the Taz was not a Cohen. So when you're learning the Shulchan Arach, should you first read the Shach before you read the Taz? Maybe that is a fulfillment of the Kidashto. Maybe you're honoring the Cohen by first learning the Shach. That's what he was asked. And he answered, when it comes to a parent, we see there is an obligation to honor the parent in the lifetime and after the lifetime. When it comes to a Kohen, we have no reference, no source that you have to honor the Kohen even after their life. Therefore, you do not need to honor the Kohen because of their status of being a Kohen after they're gone, you're visiting the cemetery. Should you visit the Kohen before the Levi or Yisrael in the cemetery? No. After they're gone, there is no source that you have to honor them even after they're gone. Very, very interesting. Lastly, on this opening Pasuk, two insights of Rav Soloveitchik. Emor via Marta. Teach the Kohen their special sacred status. And Rav Soloveitchik writes the following. While Kedoshim concludes with prohibited sexual relations, Parsha's Emor begins with a discussion of the laws of the Kohanim, whom a Kohen is permitted to marry, the blemishes that disqualify a Kohen for serving in the temple, and the laws of impurity which pertain specifically to the Kohen. What is the transition from Kedoshim to Parsha's Emor? What's the juxtaposition? What does the end of last week's Parsha, 
the laws of illicit relations, the laws of sexual morality. What does that have to do with the beginning of this week's Pasha, the law of the special sacred status of the Kohen? That is Rav Soloveitchik's question. Many of the prohibitions of forbidden relationships, arayos, were not imposed exclusively on the Jewish people. Even non-Jews, in many of these same areas by the Noahide laws, are prohibited. At the same time of the flood, the earth rebelled against all of mankind as a result of the abrogation of these laws. Immorality has a metaphysical consequence that other sins lack. The acts themselves defile the land. So when we lose, when we lose, I'm sharing this insight particularly because we're getting close to the generation of the flood in losing our boundaries, in losing our definitions, in losing our expectations, in losing our, our sense of shame, our capacity to blush, our pursuit of holiness, our preservation of that which is sacred. It feels like we're creeping close to the days of the flood. That's not a good thing. Sexual morality is a metaphysical consequence of this since lack. The act themselves defile the land. If acts of impurity are committed and the land is polluted, there's only one remedy, to purify and purge the land. That's why the Torah says, we'll get to it, that the land spits out the people who live with their immorality. The Torah begins in Bereshus with the consequence of violating the universal principles of sexual morality. Hashem explained to the Jewish people that their predecessors were ejected from the land of transgressing for transgressing these laws. However, Jewish people were given many more restrictions in this domain. The additional prohibitions imposed on Klal Yisrael were instituted to reflect the unique sanctity that they possessed. His nation must maintain a higher standard than required of mankind as a whole. The details of this heightened standard are enumerated in Acharemos, and the punishment are listed in Kedoshim. Now in Emor, Hashem imparted another message, that even within Klal Yisrael, there is a group whose restrictions in this regard are more stringent. There are prohibitions that apply to all Jews, and those affect only one sector of the Jewish community. A divorcee, a Chalala, or a Zona are allowed to marry a Yisrael, but they're prohibited to a Kohen. The reason the Kohanim experience so many restrictions in this area is because they have a unique responsibility. They offer up the fire offerings to Hashem, the food offerings. They have an added dimension of Kedusha that results from the performance of sacrificial service. Why does this added dimension express itself specifically through more Arayos restrictions? Why was the Kohen not given added responsibilities in other areas? In other words, wonders the Rav. What's the connection? between the end of Parshas Kedoshim and the beginning of Parshas Amor, the end of Kedoshim is the consequence for Arayos. What happens when you lose those boundaries? What happens when you violate those space? What happens when you no longer know and can't preserve? What is holiness? What are holy relationships? And what are unholy? What are legitimate? What are illegitimate? What are appropriate? What are inappropriate? What are moral? And what are, yes, immoral relationships? When you lose those boundaries, when we lose ourselves, we lower ourselves. So the beginning of Parshas Emor is that the Kohanim have a greater responsibility in this area as a reflection of their greatest, of their greater responsibility and role in offering sacrifices and so on. But one does the Rav, why not give them greater mitzvahs in another area? For example, why not require the Kohanim to daven five times a day? Yisraelim will daven three times a day, Kohanim five times a day. Yisraelim have these laws of kashras, and Kohanim have even more restrictive laws of Kasra. Why not give them more restrictions in another area? Why specifically in this area of Arayas, of morality? And listen to what the Rav says. Sexual morality is not based solely on the sanctity of Israel, but on human dignity. Human existence depends upon these prohibitions. And this is what he writes. This is what he writes. Homosexuality, adultery, violations of other arayas eradicate the barrier that sets man apart from animal, and the very fiber of human existence becomes destroyed. Non-Jews are thus responsible to keep the basic laws of arayas, as well as other restricted restrictions in the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach. In the generation of the flood, the violators desecrated their divine image. Loss of human dignity is tantamount to self-destruction. If certain prohibitions are essential for all humanity, many more are needed to maintain the Kedusha of B'nai Yisrael, and yet more are necessary to maintain the singular Kedusha of the Kohanim. The transition from Kedoshim to Emor tracks the increased restrictions associated with increased Kedusha. Essentially, when we lose our moral compass in this area, of illicit relations and gender relations, when we, in sexual morality, when we lose our compass, we forfeit our very humanity, our very dignity, our very sacred status. And so those who have a greater responsibility to preserve and protect their higher sanctity, so 
non-Jews, Jews, Kohanim, greatest among us, have more restrictions, greater awareness, and greater obligations in these areas. But that language, the violators desecrate their divine image. Loss of human dignity is self-destruction. The Aruch Lanier writes this too. We know, we speak, there are three areas of relationships that we have in life. The relationship between us and God, between us and fellow man, and between us and ourselves. And he writes that the three most severe prohibitions, that it's better to give your life than violate them, which are, don't murder, don't worship an idol, and illicit relations. These correspond with the three relationships that we have. How? Don't murder is, ben adam, lachavera, between man and man. Don't worship an idol is, ben adam lamakom, between us and God. What does that leave left? Arayos, yarag yavor, don't violate the moral boundaries, is ben adam la'atzmo, that is between us and ourselves. Because the moment, the moment we become undignified, the moment we lose our divine image, the moment we give in, we forfeit our humanity. What makes us different than an animal? That's what the Rav is writing. Animals indulge their impulse, their instinct, their appetite, and they don't preserve some moral clarity and self-awareness and sovereignty over themselves. And I'm not sitting in judgment. We're all human and we struggle. We struggle to look at things we shouldn't look at, to think about things we shouldn't think. And there are people who struggle not to cross boundaries they shouldn't cross. And there are people who go through difficulties and have certain experiences in their life that make it even more complicated this test they undergo. And we're not sitting here in judgment of others who may not have passed that test. That's not why we're raising this, and I want to be clear. We're not sitting here in judgment of those who didn't pass that test. We're sitting here in awareness for ourselves of how careful we have to be and the boundaries that we have to preserve for ourselves and for the people that we love and what we need to be unashamed and not defensive to teach and to model and to expect from those around us and the generations to come. Because an animal indulges their appetite. And what makes us a tzalem elokim, what makes us a chilek elokim imal mamash, what makes us a godly soul is the ability to rise above that appetite, to not indulge that impulse and that instinct, to maintain and preserve those boundaries of who we are and how we live and what we look at and what we think and how we behave and if we act out. We have that ability. We should see and know that within ourselves. Sometimes it's only the mochen de godless know that we have it. And the mochen de katna say, what's the difference? And you're going to just fall back anyway. And you're going to start looking at those things anyway. And you're going to start acting out anyway. So you know you are just that lowly animal anyway. That's the mochen de katna speaking. But lahazir gedolam alakatanim is that we have to listen to the mochen de godless. The moments that we did preserve the moments that we do show sovereignty, the moments that we do have self-control, those are the mochen de godless, and they have to be mazir ala katanam, the mochen de katnas, to know that we can. Don't forfeit or desecrate your divine image. Don't give up your human dignity. Don't self-destruct. Have we not seen that? The people who make poor choices in this area and violate those boundaries, self-destruct. Their worlds implode. Their relationships disintegrate. In their life, their reputation, their family, all because they indulge this appetite that is animal, not human. So Hashem says, the more you climb on the ladder of sanctity, the more careful and the more restrictive you need to be in this area. And that's why Parshas Emor is after Parshas Kedoshim. Kedoshim ends with the consequence of losing moral boundaries, sexual moral boundaries. And Parshas Emor begins with the Kohanim, who have even higher and greater restrictions in this, in this area. In this area. Then the Rav has a beautiful comment, Lenefesh lo yitama be'amav. Why is it that corpses convey tumma? Why is it? Are they dirty? Are they disgusting? This was a human being. A moment ago, before the neshama was extracted from this body, this human being we loved, we held the hand, we caressed, we hugged, we kissed, we cared for, and now that this soul has been extracted from the body and what lies before us is a corpse, all of a sudden it's a source of defilement, it's a source of contamination, it's a source of tumma. Why? What? How? What is that all about? And here, Rav Soloveitchik has the following comment. He says the distinct status which the Torah has granted in purity associated with Tumas Mace is due to the unique experience which man lives through whenever he's confronted with death. Other objects which contaminate a person are experienced as either aesthetically ugly or physically abominable. Any dead organism is a source of filth, squalor. The organism is in a process of de decomposition. 
a scene arousing unpleasant emotions. Disease can also be subsumed under the category of the repulsive. Tsaras, leprosy is an excellent example of the ugliness of disease. Tumma and zoama, impurity and filth are synonymous terms. So a sheretz, a bug, a disintegrating animal corpse, these things can contaminate tumma because they're repulsive, they're unpleasant, they're filth. Filth and impurity are synonymous. But tumma's mace cons- uh, constitutes a unique category. Of course a dead person is ipso facto a dead organism. And whatever is said of the animal cadaver can also be said of the lifeless human body, which is also exposed to the ugliness of the ugly process of decomposition. But there's something more horrible to be experienced when one is in contact with human death. As far as the zoological kingdom is concerned, death is not a monstrosity. It simply destroys the functionality of the organism. Human death, however, terminates a personality, an ontological dimension, a spiritual individuality who was self-aware and self-conscious, a personality which was driven by vision and hope, which which despaired, rejoiced, and grieved, which lived not only in the present moment, but both in retrospection and anticipation. In a word, death destroys a world. It is the tragic experience of the human being who's endowed with time awareness and knows that his existence is a mockery. Death contradicts the God-man relationship. How can one imagine love of God in Sha'ol, said David HaMelech, a Pasuk in Tehillim, Perak Lamed. In the animal world, the death of the individual is not tragic because the existence of the genus is not threatened by the death of an individual. There's no individualistic existence among animals. Now, save your emails, dog lovers, cat lovers, animal lovers. I know your dog is special and your cat is unlike any other. But the Torah view and perspective is nothing wrong with loving your dog. And I know while your children and your spouse ignore you, the death, the dog runs up and hugs you and loves you and snuggles with you. I got it, save the email. But the bottom line is, the Rambam writes explicitly, when it comes to animals, we have what's called hashkacha klalas. We see animals as a whole, as a unit. Whereas humans, each one is their own world. So the death of a particular animal, we're sad, that lizard, that iguana, that frog, that ant, even that de- dog or that cat, it's sad, it's sad, that was an individual iguana. But we view the iguanas as a whole, the species as a whole, right? So that iguana was not a world. The species of iguanas continue, continue. Whereas a human being is unique. A human being is a world unto themselves. The individual existence as the representative of a class, the death of the individual does not count with an animal. But among people, the situation is completely different. The individual does not lead a representative, but an individualistic existence. Every human being is not a representative of humanity. Every human being is a world. Every human being is a unique manifestation and expression of God in this world. And when a human being dies, each human has an individuality, a personality, a microcosm. Existential legitimacy is to be found in the individual person himself. Death denies the very worth of human existence. Thomas Mace is due not to organic but to spiritual destruction. It is the expression of human anxiety and terror, human helplessness in the face of a mocking Satan. Thomas Mace is the result of the traumatic experience that dislocates man's self, the eye awareness and existential security. Death lurks in the shadows. Death defeats everyone, great or small, clever or simple. Thomas Mace represents not just an experience of ugliness, but the human situation, the tragic and absurd human destiny. So Rav Salavitchik writes that that's why corpse, Thomas Mace, is the avi of us hatuma. Thomas Mace is the archetype. It is the highest level. It is the, the top category of tumma because it is the highest tumma. It is the negative energy in the world of the loss of a world, of a unique tzalem elokim, a unique expression of God here in this world. Okay, Pasuk base. Gotta get to at least Pasuk base. We mentioned the Kohen, even though the Kohen, because of their higher, higher sanctity and status, has greater obligation to preserve moral boundaries, but the Kohen too becomes contaminated. The Kohen too can have contact with a corpse or with Tumah when it's a mother, father, brother, sister, spouse, or a child. Not only can they, but they should. And here the Otsar Plosa Torah. We go back to the Otsar Plosa Torah. What about for a in-law? The Yerushalmi Mesachas Brachos, Rav Yanai, Zi'ira Kohen, Hayabiniftar Chamav, Sheigam Rabo. Rav Yanai, who was a Kohen, his shver, his father-in-law, who was also his teacher, was Niftar, he died. Uba Rabi Yanai, Veshol Rabi Yossi, Immutal Olitami, Lechamav, Mishim Kvodo. 
Can he honor his father-in-law by going to the funeral? Could he go to the cemetery? Could he, does a father-in-law have the status of a father that a Kohen could be Metame himself? Is it one of the exceptions? Because the tour we once gave a Hoshir about this, the relationship with in-laws, sometimes complicated, not necessarily so. I now play both roles. I'm a child-in-law and a parent-in-law. Your whole life changes. When you go from being a child to also being a parent, now you see your parents differently. When you go from a son-in-law to a father-in-law, your whole life changes. When you become a Zayda, your whole life changes. How you see all these things? Everything changes. So the Shulchan Aruch says that there's an obligation to honor your in-laws. There's an obligation. And there's a big discussion. Is that a way of showing love to your spouse? Is it direct or indirect? Through your spouse you have an obligation? Direct or indirect? There's a big discussion in Halacha. And here the Yerushalmi in Brachos, in this situation, Rav Yanai was also the student of his father-in-law, of his father-in-law. So he wanted to know, both as a son-in-law, as the Edom, and also as the Talmud, do I have to honor him? Being a student, being, sorry, a son-in-law, does not, does not, justify becoming contaminated. And because your Talmud also is not allowed, we don't let Kohanim go to their Rebbe's funeral. So the answer was no. But there's an interesting discussion. This Yerushalmi, maybe a father-in-law should be like a father. Maybe the Shveran figure should be like parents regarding the Kohen being allowed to be metame themselves. To be metame themselves. Interestingly, interestingly, in this Pasuk, what's the order? Who can the Kohen be metame himself to? His mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his siblings. Why that order? You might have thought, what would come first? The father. Sometimes the Torah gives us a father first, sometimes the Torah gives us a mother first. When it comes to kavod, it tells us, honor your mother, honor your, sorry, your father. Why does it say father first? Because you're more inclined to honor your mother because she takes care of you when you're sick. She packs your lunch for school. She's the one who nurses you back to health. She's the one who tucks you into bed. She's the one who loves you unconditionally. Your father also loves you unconditionally, but he's the one who sometimes has to give you consequences and accountability. He's the one who has to sometimes punish. People naturally have more yira for a father. So Torah has to say, don't forget to have awe and fear of your mother. People naturally have more love and affection for their mother. Torah has to say, don't, be, don't forget to be loving and affectionate to your father. But why here in this Pasuk is the mother first? Imo, why not Aviv first? Interesting question, right? So the Ibn Ezra says something nifla. He gives a reason. You know why Li Imo first? Tam lahazkir Imo kodem ha'av ki azachar cha yoser mehanakeva berov. Because men outlive women mostly. That's what the Ibn Ezra. Rav Avram Ibn Ezra lived in the Middle Ages. And Rav Avram Ibn Ezra says, in his time in the Middle Ages, who had a longer lifespan, men or women? Men live longer. So who are you burying first? Your mother, not your father. And that's why the Pasuk says, Le'imo, before Le'aviv, excuse me, because women die earlier than men. Which goes against the Jewish joke about marriage. Why men die first. But we'll leave that joke aside because what my wife insists is not funny. Anyway, so this is the Ibn Ezra. Interesting Ibn Ezra, why Imo is first. This is so, the Otsuplos HaTorah dug up that women die sooner. Also is in a Tosos and Ksubas quotes him from the Yushalmi. The Rambam also in his commentary on Mishnah Nida writes, Also minyan Hashanam shal nekevas laonas nadarim pachos minyan Hashanam shal gvarim. When it comes to the age for nadarim, a halacha for Nidaram, women is younger than men. Why? The Ramah also writes this, why does a girl turn bas mitzvah at 12 and a boy bar mitzvah at 13? Because she's got less to live. She's going to die earlier, so she matures faster, and therefore she's bas mitzvah at 12, he's bar mitzvah at 13. So the Rambam writes this, Lagabe two halachas, bas mitzvah and Nidaram. Tosus quotes the Yerushalmi this way, and the Ibn Ezra points this out here on this Pasuk. The question is why? I'll tell you why that's particularly perplexing, because it's not true today. I looked it up this morning. I Googled it. Who lives longer, men or women? So I looked it up today. So life expectancy. Women's life expectancy in the U.S. in 2021 
was 79 years old, men 73, according to CDC data in 2021. This life expectancy gap has serious implications for society, especially when it comes to federal spending. A whole article, a big discussion about this gap. Not only is there a gap, it's a pretty large gap. Women life expectancy is all the way to 79, and men is to 73. Some of you just gasped. Sorry about that. Uh, Jerusalem Posto had an article. In Israel, it's different, interestingly. The same year, 2021, the average life expectancy for women in Israel is 84.6 years old, and for men is 80.5. So first of all, if you needed another reason to make Aliyah, apparently, <laughs> apparently, you didn't need any new reasons, but apparently you're going to live longer. Apparently, you'll live longer if you make Aliyah. 84.6 years, the gap is smaller between the women and men in Israel, smaller. Both live longer, and the gap is smaller in, in Israel, which is very interesting. So why? So this article, Jerusalem Post, gives a number of reasons. There are physiological differences. Heart disease, which is the number one killer in the world today, attacks men more than women. Women take care of their health better than men. Uh, not only do women care about their health, they care about their social relationships. Men isolate more, and loneliness can lead to death. Women are less reckless than men, so I guess I'm, as drivers, stay quiet, Ephraim, stay quiet, stay quiet. And finally, some biology, females live longer. Anyway, whether it's in America or in Israel, women live longer than men. So why did the Ibn Ezra, Taisus, the Yerushalmi, the Rambam, why did they have this tradition? Why in the Middle Ages were men living longer than women? So much so that the Kohen was told, you can defile yourself for your mother before your father because she'll likely die first. Why? Why? So, Tosus gives the reason. The Otoplosa Torah quotes it. In antiquity, women died at childbirth. Men don't give birth. Let me repeat that. You'd never think you needed to repeat that. You never thought you'd live in a time that you needed to repeat that, but men do not give birth. Men are not pregnant. They're not, they don't give birth. I told you, one of my daughters who's expecting the OBGYN's office called her, said, you didn't fill out on the form, what, what's your gender? She said, I'm, I'm pregnant. I'm seeing the doctor because I'm pregnant. To which they said, right, but what gender? She said, I'm pregnant. That's the gender. Anyway, so men don't give birth, women do. And until fairly recent times, there was enormous risk. You know how many women died? What percentage of women died in child? What percentage of babies? How many women, how many mothers and fathers buried what percentage of their children? How many didn't make it to adolescence? We live in miraculous times, absolutely miraculous times. We are, from the perspective of antiquity, spoiled. If you have all your children and you predecease your own children, you're spoiled from the perspective of antiquity. If you didn't die in childbirth, you won the lottery from the perspective of antiquity. Every time a woman went into labor, it was a life-threatening situation. And would she survive? Today, thank God, so much less so. So based on that is why women were expected to live less on average, why men lived longer, and why the Ibn Ezra tells us the Yerushalmi, the Rambam, Imo, before Aviv, because they are going to live less time. Interesting. The uh, Makor Chaim on the Ibn Ezra has a different reason. Any doctors here can tell us. Men are naturally warmer than women. Certainly the feedback we get on the AC setting at Shul would reflect that. So since men have a higher body temperature than women, I guess they are positioned to better face the elements and they live longer. I don't know. That was true one time. I don't know if it's true anymore today. Anyway, this is an Oser Plos HaTorah classic thing he dig up dug up this Ibn Ezra, do men live longer or, or not? The Megid Yosef of Yosef Saratskin. We're going to get past these first two pesukim. We may even skip right to the end of the parsha. I promise. But ki'im l'she'ro, to your relatives, ha'karuvei love, your most immediate relatives, the seven immediate relatives. Rashi brings, ein she'ero, ki'im l'she'ero. Who is she'ero? Rashi says, ein she'ero, when it talks about your closest family, your closest family are your seven relatives, but among the seven relatives, who's your closest? Your mother, your father, your spouse, your siblings, or your children, who's the closest? Says Rashi, Ein she'ero ela ishto, your spouse. 
So he says, my Zayda, Rav Yosef Saratskin, Shlita, is quoting his Zayda, the Yoznayim Latorah, Rav Zaman Saratskin, Amai Hikta Mishto Lo'aviv Li'imo, why in the Pasuk, HaKarov Elav Ima Li'aviv Li'avno Li'tol Achiv? Notice it didn't say Ishto, that's why you needed Rashi. Kim L'She'ira, Hu She'ira, Ishto. Because Ishto was omitted from the rest of the Pasuk. Can a Kohen go to his wife's funeral? Can a Kohen go to the cemetery for his wife's burial? Of course. I, where does it say in the Pasuk? It does. Isht, uh, she'ero. She'ero is Ishto. So who's the first one mentioned in the Pasuk? Before Imo, before your mother, is your wife. Why is the wife listed first? Why is the wife listed first? Particularly, Rav Zaman Saratskin was bothered. It's normal for a person, Apidera the Seder Shal Olam, is that a person loses their parents before their wife. Ordinarily, a person's spouse is around their same age, which means that their parents and in-laws are both significantly older. So one naturally, in the normal order of things, loses their parents before their spouse. So why doesn't the Pasuk say, Imo aviv ishto livno levito lachiv? You could ask the same thing also lachiv. Achiv should go before livno levito. But here the Torah is communicating whom the Kohen can be contaminated to. One would think it would list it in the order that they'll likely expire. So why is the wife first? Wonder of Zaman Saratskin. Vitirates and he answered, Shim kol akrovim yesh la'adam she'echaz min ha'avar, hainu she'bao mimakam echad, aval ha'kurva imishto mekora be'asid, be'bana meshutafim. V'ya'asid li'olam yakar lanu meha'avar, ki ma'sha'avar ein, v'yafshar lahativo, ma'sha'in ki ha'asid, efshar od l'shaper. He says, what you have in common with everyone else is your past. Your parents, your siblings, it's your upbringing, it's your childhood, it's your past. What you have in common with your spouse is your future. Is your children, the nachas, your grandchildren growing old together, is your future. A person cherishes their future even more than their past. You live for your future more than for your past. So which is more heart-wrenching? Which is the greater loss? Which is more devastating? Which leaves the greater loneliness? Which is more shattering of dreams? A person's spouse than a person's, than a person's parents. As devastating as it is. So even though the loss of parents comes first, Dafka, because it's natural, it's less devastating. So L'She'iro, the wife, comes first. Chazal say this, It's felt the most, my heart goes out. No matter at what age, that loneliness that can result in, we daven that people are able to find the Zivak Sheni to not have to live with loneliness. So, his grandson, Rav Yosef Sarotskin, and his Megid Yosef adds another reason. Maybe the wife comes first, you know why? Because when it comes to parents, your siblings can join you in arranging their burial. They'll also call the Chavar Kadisha. They'll also deliver Hespedim. They'll also fly to Eretz Yisrael. But Ishto ain't od milvado. ishto. But when it comes to a spouse, that's on the husband. And so much so, is there a specific independent obligation to bury your parents? No. It's a fulfillment of to take care of their burial. But when it comes to a spouse, that's one of the obligations of a husband on a wife. Even a poor person has to knock on the door and raise funds to ensure a proper burial for their spouse. That's not a fulfillment of honoring a spouse. There's a separate independent mitzvah, halacha, to bury a spouse. So that's why ishto she'ero comes, comes first. Comes first. Where do we see this all from? Concludes Rav Yosef Saratskin. The makor of this is Avram. Avram Avinu was mis'asik Afshayala ben gadol. How old was Eliezer at the time? They just got back from the Akedah. How old was Eliezer at the time? 37 years old. He's 37 years old. And, Vayoshev Avram el Na'arav. The Medjish wonders, Vyitzcha Kechanu, where was he? Shalcho Eitzel Shem, Lulma Bimenu Torah. He went back to learn. So, according to Rabbi Chanina, Yitzchak was in the house. He could have been Osek in the Kvura. But, Mikan Sheikara, Yisak Bemesu, Mechive Ishle Ishto. You see that more than the children, the spouse has to make arrangements for the funeral. And that's why She'ero comes before Aviv V'imo, Azai Zakti Megid Yosef. That is the insight of the Megid Yosef. Perach Zain. Torah tells us still with the Kohanim. 
They can't marry a woman who's a zona or has been desecrated, or they cannot marry a woman who's been divorced. Each one is holy to God. We know that the Kohen has stricter rules of who he can marry. That is an acronym. What is the acronym? Azulai. The Chidar, Chaim Yosef David Azulai, he has a discussion in here. Some say that anyone who describes that the name Azulai comes because of this Pasuk, is put in Chirim. Because what are you suggesting about the Chida and his family? That there is an issue of being a Chalal, someone there is a Zona. Not a very nice thing to call the family. So don't say that the name Azulai comes from this acronym. Someone who says so is put in Chirim. Others say, no, there's nothing wrong with saying that. Why are you saying that? Because this was a family of Kohanim who were careful to observe this halacha. Anyway, an interesting discussion. What does the word zona mean? A Kohen cannot marry a grusha, a chalal, a gioras. A Kohen cannot marry. A Kohen cannot marry. This comes up. Kohen falls in love. And sometimes it comes up intentionally. Comes up, sometimes it comes up so to say, rebelliously, that a Kohen falls in love with a divorcee and doesn't care, wants to marry her anyway. What does the rabbi do? Can he be Masada Kedushin? Kohen falls in love with a Gioras, a convert. What, what can you do? Chalo. So, what is a Zona in this case? Can a Kohen marry a Zona? A promiscuous woman, how do you define a Zona? And the Ramam talks about, a Kohen cannot marry a woman who's ever been intimate with a non-Jew. By definition, that's a form of being a zona. A woman who's been fully intimate with a non-Jew has the status of a zona, and a Kohen cannot marry. Now, that can be a terrible thing, but sometimes the Kohen who fell in love with the convert or the divorcee, if determines that his mother, before she married the father, had been intimate with a non-Jew, and the father slept with a technical zona, would leave him a halal, he now can marry the convert or the divorcee. So the world we live in, in which these boundaries have been more violated maybe than ever, is a net negative, but can be a positive for the Kohen who's trying to not be held to the Kohen status because of who they fell in love with. If you didn't follow that, don't worry about it. But that's one of the complicated ways we deal with this. Now I just share with you, when you were a kid in school and you learned, for example, the beginning of Sefer Yehoshua and the story of Rachav, who was just mentioned in today's daf. Ra, love on the daf and our of the Torah come together. So Rachav, Rachav who harbored the two spies who came to investigate the land, the good spies, the good story of investigating the land before they came in, the beginning of Sefer Yoshua. Rachav, the Zona, harbored these spies. Rachav ultimately marries Yoshua. And Rachav is described by the Navi as a Zona. And when you were in fifth and sixth and seventh grade and you ask your teacher, what's a Zona? What did your teacher say? She's an innkeeper. Zona's an innkeeper. Because what does the word Zona come from? Mizonos. She puts out the, the shtickle Mizonos. She put out the ragalach and the babka. She was the innkeeper who served the Mizonos. She served the Mizonos, the good cake. So was your teacher right or wrong? Radak. The Radak, Rav David Kimchi. On the Pasuk in Yeshua, Vayavu Beisi Shazono Shmarachav. The Radak writes, You can understand the word zona in two ways. Zona kemashma'a, a promiscuous, illicit woman. O mocheres mazon, a person who serves mazonos. The Radak brings the Targum Yonasan, who every time it says zona, writes pundakis. So a pundaki is a hotel, an inn. A pundakis is the innkeeper. Not like Unklus translates. Unklus translates zonos as nafkas bro, which means a zona. She's a zona. Azona. But the Radak is relying on the Targum Yonasan, not the Targum Unklus. That a Pundaki, she's an innkeeper. The Radak explains both ways. So can you really explain? He says here that maybe it's really the same thing. Hazona kepundakisa, shemafkeres atzmalakol. Maybe it's not a stira. Maybe Pundakis doesn't mean innkeeper. Pundakis comes from Hefker. The innkeeper is, she practices. A inappropriate form of hospitality. 
So she's called an innkeeper. The innkeeper is an extreme form of hospitality. Just like the innkeeper says, I provide and I'm hospitable to all, the zona is providing and servicing and hospitable to all in an inappropriate way. So that word zona, what does it mean? Don't call anyone it, whatever you do. But does it mean mezonos? Does it mean zona kemashma? And so on and so forth. Perak chaf alaf pasuk ches. Moving along. Ooh, we got to skip to the end. I wanted to tell you the end. Got five minutes. Okay, skip to the end. Perachav beis pasuk tezvav. We don't get to it this year. We'll never get to it. Every year we never get to it. Perachav beis pasuk tezvav. We have. Uh, sorry, perachav dalit pasuk tezvav. We go through all the Moadim. Parshas Emar has all these laws of the Kohanim. And then we have a litany of other laws. And then we go through all of the Jewish holidays. Beautiful. And then the Parsha ends with a very interesting, strange story of the blasphemer. What happens? The story of, we have the menorah, we have the showbread, and it ends with the story of the son of an Israelite woman, who is the son of a, who ben ish mitzri, the son of the Jewish woman pronounces Hashem's name and blasphemizes him. They bring him to Moshe. His mother's name is Shlomis Basdivri. He's from the tribe of Dan. They throw him in prison when they figure out what to do with him. And what does Hashem say to do with him? Take him outside the camp. Anyone who heard his blasphemy, anyone who heard him say God's explicit name in vain, curse Hashem's name, should lean their hands on him. And then they all stone the blasphemer. They stone him. And then say, anyone who curses God, anyone who curses God will bear sin. Ragom yirgamu bo kol ha'ida. The whole assembly will kill, will stone him. Kager ke'ezrach b'nakvo shem yumas. Everybody is liable to this. This is the way the parsha ends, essentially, with this story. Who's this person? What caused them to curse? What and how did they curse God? Why is this the punishment? What in the world is going on here? There is a lot to share about it. But we start with Rav Soloveitchik. We'll start with Rav Soloveitchik, who says the following. The Torah considered blasphemy to be a very severe violation. In other words, Rav Soloveitchik is bothered by the following question. Maybe you are too. Is God really affected by a lowly, mere mortal, a finite human being cursing him out? Is someone give God an ayin hara? Someone ruin God's reputation? Give God a bad Yelp review online? It's going to hurt Hashem's business? Why does Hashem care? We stone him, capital punishment, we lean our hands on him. Such a warning, such a reaction. The way the Rav puts it. Considering the irreverent remark, a grave sin, do we punish an insect that bites us? Does it arouse our wrath? Do we feel hurt by the barking of a dog? Certainly not. Why then is the omniscient, eternal creator and sustainer of the universe, whose will is the source of all cosmic dynamics, why is God concerned with a nonsensical indignity uttered by a stupid, weak, transient being? Here today and tomorrow in the grave. If we're not angry at the mosquito, why should God punish the blasphemer with death? It's a good question. So the Rav writes, Hashem punishes the blasphemer not because of the indignity to him, but because by making such a statement, man destroys his own Tzalem Elohim. He destroys not only his own Tzalem Elohim, but the Tzalem Elohim reflected in the universe. Nature of the universe is such a moral being. The Rambam in his Moronavuchim refers to the cosmos as a macro-anthropos, one large individuality, a personality. Blasphemy destroys the Tzalem Elohim, not only of the individual himself, but of the macro-anthropos. The universe reflects the glory, the image of Hashem. Oh, the blasphemer is burdened with sin. He has brought about a destructive change in his personality. The moment he makes a sacrilegious statement, he is no longer rooted in the Almighty. The destructive effect is not limited to him. It is destructive for the entire universe. It's a very, very important insight of the Rav. When we tolerate, when we are exposed to, the poison of a person who has the brazenness to curse God, God's not affected. Don't worry about God. You know what is affected? Our environment, our culture. We are affected. 
When we, over here, when we see, when we are exposed to someone with the boldness, the brazenness, the chutzpah, to lose and forfeit their tzalem elokim by cursing out God, it's one thing to struggle in your belief with God. It's one thing to have uncertainty. It's one thing to navigate your doubt. It's another thing to be angry at God. That we're also okay with. One can be disappointed or angry or object to God. But to curse God? To blaspheme God? To introduce that to the environment? You know, we're such environmentalists. We worry about secondhand smoke. We worry about exposure to whatever levels and how much we're introducing to the, to the universe. What about spiritual environment? And what about the spiritual poisons? What about the spiritual contaminants that we're putting into the universe? So the Rav writes, the reason Hashem has this high level of accountability and what seems to be an intense reaction is not because He's affected by the curse, but the environment, the toxin, the contaminant that's introduced to the environment. When a person spiritually has the brazenness to curse God, that v'nasacheto, you bear not only the burden of the words, these silly words you said, but you bear the burden of what you introduced into the universe, and that's what you're held accountable for, and that's why the universe and the people who heard you on their behalf need to react the way they do. Have to lean their hands because they heard it being uttered. They need their own. They have to purge themselves the experience of absorbing the contaminant. Secondhand cursing of God. You could die of secondhand smoke and you could die of secondhand hearing God cursed. So you, this person who was exposed secondhand smoke, also has to do something. They also have to do a smicha and they also need to have a form of a kapara. Where'd this person come from? Where'd this person come from? How'd they go out? Where'd they come from? So, Vayetze, Mehechan Yatza. Where'd they come from? Rashi jumps on the fact that the Pasuk describes Vayetze. We're finishing up, don't worry. This person, Vayetze, they went out. Where'd they come out from? Where'd they go out to? Mehechan Yatza, Reblevi Yom, or Meolamo Yatza. They left their world. What does that mean? They left their world. Revolver writes in Alishur Chilik Bez. Pelaplos Adam Yacholotes me Olam of Dios Zara La Atzmo. You know, a person can leave their world. Their world is their sanity. Their world is self preservation. And a person can sabotage their own world. A person can self destruct. A person can lose their world, their sanity. A person can lose their stability, their balance. And that says Revolver is what Chazal meant in the Mishnah and Pirkei Yavos. In the fourth parak of Pirkeyavos, the Mishnah tells us, When a person is filled with envy and jealousy, and your whole life is consumed by seeing what other people have, and you're craving it. When a person is filled with taiva, with lust and desire and insatiable appetite. When a person is filled with the pursuit of kavod, you just want to be an influencer. You just want to have the most likes. You just want to be the most famous it removes a person min ha'olam from the world. What's the world? Revolba says it means it removes you from your world. You lose your sanity. All you care about is competing with what other people have, envy and jealousy of others, indulging your appetite, your taiva, honor and influence. You lose your sanity. You lose your world. You lose who you're meant to be. So this person who could curse out God, yatsa me'olamo, they left, they walked out, they left their world, they left their sanity. Rav Druk has another interpretation. I told you we're finishing, we are. As long as I keep saying we're finishing, you'll believe me. I buy myself a couple more minutes. I don't need a couple more minutes, we're finishing. Me'echan yatsa, Rav Levi says me'olamo yatsa, he left his world. Rav Brech Yomer, I'm back in Rashi, me'farsha shalamala yatsa. Ligleg va'omer b'yom ha'shabbas y'archanu, derech ha'melech lechol pascham b'chol yom. So what was the parsha that came right before the case of cursing out God? Was the Shobra, the Lacham Apanim. The Lacham Apanim sat in the Mishkan on the Shulchan all week long. It was switched out. And Chazal tell us, when it was switched out, it was just as fresh as when it was put there to begin with. But he wonders, this individual who curses out God, what led them to curse out God? What bothered them so much? They heard this law. What's the law of the Lechem Aponim? These 12 loaves of bread. Each Friday they were baked. On Shabbos, the new ones replaced the old ones. So the anonymous man heard this parsha. He learned this law. He jumped up and he screamed and he objected. He says, a king eats fresh hot bread daily. And for the king of kings, we only bake him new bread once a week. We're serving him stale bread all week. We only bake him fresh bread once a week. 
So he curses out God. Does that make sense to you? He starts out by what? Defending God's honor. And he ends up by violating, by cursing God's honor. So how could that be? How does this righteous, virtuous, pious person who jumps up and says, for a regular king you bake once a week, and for the king of, for daily, and for the king of kings you're baking once a week, and then he ends up the same person. A moment later, in reaction, in a fit, in his rage, a moment later, ends up being the one who's Mekalel, who's Mecharif, who's Megadev, who's cursing out God. So the Yalka Yehuda suggests, you know what, it's not strange at all. You know why? The Megadev was never really interested in protecting God. You know what he is? He's what the Yalka Yehuda calls a Kitsoni personality. What's a Kitsoni personality? An extremist. The extremist can be extreme this way one moment, and extreme that way the next moment. Because it was never really about what they were defending. It's really all about being an extremist. When someone lives as an extremist, they'll take this position, and in a moment they'll take the contrarian position. Because they're never really defending a value. They're never really arguing or caring about a virtue. They're just an extremist by nature. And that's what's going on over here, is that this individual began by defending God's honor, and they end by violating God's honor as their anger grew, because they were kitsoni this way, and they end up kitsoni that way. You can never indulge anger or rage, because in that fit, you'll end up contradicting your own self. It's not about being extremist in our reaction, in our thought, in our behavior. It's about being what the Ramam calls the Shvil Azav, being measured, being strategic, being thoughtful, and thinking about what is that value ultimately that we, that we care about. Rav Druk also has a beautiful insight. So does Rav Nachman. Maybe we'll start with that next week. Again, join the WhatsApp if you're not yet part of it for the schedule, bonus material, and to uh, get the Parsha write-up. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.